is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Political and culture war battles on school campuses. The latest fight led to a scuffle in Glendale. We'll go in-depth. New York City is finding out what it's like to deal with wildfire smoke, and surprise is not very good. If you're seeing fewer and fewer teenagers out and about these days, your eyes are not misleading you. They, uh, teenagers, are staying home more, and we'll explain why. But we start with political battles surrounding schools. John Rogers is an education professor at UCLA, and he's written about political conflicts in schools. John, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. So there was a time when school board meetings were incredibly dull. In fact, people would often fall asleep during them, not knowing what actually transpired. That doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Why? I think part of the reason why we have more contentious school board meetings is that there's been a purposeful campaign on the part of many conservative activists around the country to try to push a political agenda that seeks to um, attack public schools, attack the, the idea that public schools should be places that include all students and that provide dignity and respect to all students. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was going to be my next question. It does feel a little coordinated at this point. First, uh, you know, not too long ago, it was all about CRT and then it became uh, gender ideology, whatever that means. And uh, and that that seems to be the uh, the current bear right now at uh, school boards is anything having to do with the LGBTQ community. And it does feel a little coordinated. As a matter of fact, at the recent scuffle in Glendale, there were some witnesses there who uh, said they spotted some some well-known proud boys who didn't have any kids in that school. Some of them didn't have kids at all, and yet they were there protesting at that school board meeting. Is this really that coordinated, and where is this coordination coming from? There have been efforts over the last couple of years on the part of conservative legal organizations conservative philanthropies, and then certain aspects or wings of the Republican Party to push a political agenda and to attack public schools. One explanation for this is that in the wake of the Dobbs decision on abortion rights, the Republican Party decided that culture wars could no longer be fought through the through questions about abortion, and, and they were looking for a new set of issues to pursue LGBTQ rights became one area that they began to focus in on. And so they've been driving those issues and they've been attacking public schools as a consequence. I dare say that there are probably some of our listeners who are parents who might be listening to this and would beg to differ with what you just said. They would probably make the argument that if there is an agenda, it's an agenda of wokeness on the from the left. And that what this is all about from their point of view is parental rights in terms of a parent having a right to help determine what their child learns or doesn't learn in a public school setting. So I appreciate that parents want the best for their children. It's also important to remember what we have public schools for. Our public schools are places that bring together diverse young people who have very different backgrounds and create opportunities for them to learn together about their shared past and their shared future. 
To do that, we need to create spaces where all young people feel safe, where they feel that their families are respected and their own lives are respected as well. We want all parents to have a voice, but they need to have a voice in the democratic process, which means that they need to participate in, in democratic governance. They can't, as individuals, deny all other students opportunities to learn and opportunities to feel safe in school. All right. Thanks so much, uh, John Rogers, an education professor at UCLA. Right now, though, New York City has the worst air quality in the world by some measures. It's because of wildfire smoke blowing down from Canada. Publicist Amanda Gorman is with us. She works in a high rise in the city. Also here is Dr. Josh Hellman, who's a board member of Atmo Pfizer, which is a tech company trying to improve quality. Both of you, thanks for being with us. Hey, it's great to be here. Amanda, yeah, thank you. Amanda, let me start with you. Are, are you still at work? So I actually left home because to pick up my daughter from school because the air quality was so bad. I didn't want my nanny to go pick her up and walk there on the way. So I am home now, but I, I left my office a couple of hours ago. And man, oh, man, you cannot see anything out the windows. It's really surreal. It's a, and a very apocalyptic and what about besides seeing, what does it sort of feel like at a visceral level? Smell. Yeah, smell. And does it make you cough or what? So you you feel like you're in one big giant bonfire with everybody else in New York City. So definitely a lot of smells. I'm walking around with my N95 mask, as I'm sure the doctor would recommend. But definitely. I, yeah. it is still, I mean, it gets through the mask. If, I don't know if you can hear it, but my, my voice is usually a little bit more clear than it is. So I'm starting to feel the effects from a raspy level. I, I feel like also it's starting to affect everybody a little bit mentally as well. Just to, it's been a couple of days of this now and it, it doesn't seem to be getting better, only worse. Yeah, uh, doctor, we in uh, Southern California get used to wildfires occasionally dealing with some smoke in the air. I, I don't recall it being as bad as I've seen pictures of New York City right now. Uh, it does kind of remind me of those old pictures of Los Angeles back in the smog days when uh, we would get smog and health warnings. Uh, how bad is it for your health, the conditions in New York right now? Yes, it's, it's definitely very bad. And I, I actually grew up in Los Angeles. So I remember the, uh, the inversion layer and um, the, the tightness of the throat. But you're exactly right. The, the smoke exposure that people are having right now is very dangerous. I, Amanda, I think you said you had kids, right? I do. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. Are you concerned about their health? Because they're growing up in this sort of soup there. I'm extremely concerned. I mean, I, I think every parent should be. My daughter on the way home is asking, you know, what's going on? You know, why does the sky look this way? It's very concerning. I have every single air purifier that I was able to get running in the house, and I feel like it's still not enough. Um you know, Best Buy, Home Depot, you can't get an air purifier anyway, yeah. <laughs> anywhere. And, and doctor, what, what do you recommend? Air purifiers, N95 masks, what else could somebody do to protect themselves? Yeah, well, the first thing is obviously if you can stay indoors because you've, you've got a better chance of being able to purify the air if you're indoors. And the exciting thing is there's new technology now using something called agglomeration using sound waves to uh, cause of very small particles that can do damage to your health. They, these particles can go to your brain and your heart and do damage. 
the exciting thing is there's this new technology using sound waves to make, it's, it's basically like a snowball effect. You take these very small particles, you know, a 50th of the size of the width of a hair, and you, you basically make these particles bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So then it's a lot easier for the filter system to remove them so that you're not breathing them in. And also, uh, 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 we, I think we introduced you as, as Amanda Gorman, Angela uh, Gorman. I apologize about that. Uh, are your kids uh, coughing a lot? How are they doing? So far, they're they're okay. I don't see any ill effects with them. Yeah. It's more myself and my husband. Uh, but, you know, we're going to hunker down. We're going to stay inside as long as we need to. I, you know, I thought about leaving, but there's nowhere to go to. <laughs> uh, are, are you concerned about long-term effects? Or are you worried about that? You're a little paranoid? You know, I, I'll have to talk to Dr. Hellman here and, and see what we can do to help combat. But I feel confident as long as we stay inside and they're really not getting too exposed to out, outdoors to the heavy, heavy fumes and smog and smoke that... I uh, we'll make it through as long as this doesn't go on for too much longer. Are, are you actually, do you live in the city or do you live in a suburb? We're in the city. So we're in, we're in the heart of it right now. All right. We want to thank our uh, guest there, uh, Angela Gorman, dealing with the uh, smoke and the and the smog in New York City right now because of uh, wildfires in Canada. Also, Dr. Josh Hellman, board member at Atmo Pfizer. That's a tech company that uh, tries to improve air quality. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Arch. A little bit later in the show, more and more teenagers seem to be fine not hanging out with their friends. We'll look into why that is. Right now, though, officials in Ukraine are rushing supplies of drinking water to areas affected by flooding from that uh, collapsed dam in the southern part of the country. Back with us now is a war correspondent, Phil uh, Idner. Thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Uh, uh, Phil... Uh, I, I, I've been hearing reports that, you know, both sides are blaming each other for blowing up this dam. Uh, Ukraine blaming Russia. Russia is saying that Ukraine did it. Uh, who do you think, from your vantage point, is responsible? Well, as far as responsibility as to who who, who caused the dam uh, to explode uh, and unleash this torrent of water, um, you know, Moscow says uh, Ukraine did it. Uh, Ukraine says that uh, it was the Russians. Uh, the Russians were in possession of the dam uh, territorially, militarily. Uh, so there's some 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 points that lean towards it being Russia. I can tell you certainly within Ukraine itself. Uh, here in Kiev, I, I've just come from a from a, a, a public event. I spoke to many people, and in their consensus was, "Why would we do that to ourselves?" Uh, it it doesn't make any sense is what, what a lot of people here in Ukraine are saying. So certainly the population in, in Kiev is of the mind that it, it's just nonsensical to think that it would be the Ukrainians doing it to themselves. Who, who does it help militarily? There's a lot of argumentation about that because we don't know exactly the Ukrainian counteroffensive that's been talked about for, for quite some time now. You know, was there an amphibious element to it? At some point, they're going to have to cross the the Dnieper River. So, uh, you know, does is it better defensively for the Russians? Uh, does it does it damage Ukrainian military plans? But look, by and large, here's the situation on the ground, and it's that there are there's just 
massive devastation in the southern part of this country. There are villages that have been taken out. There are, uh, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of people who have been displaced. This will mean hundreds of thousands of people will go without water. This will mean that the the power generated by the hydroelectric dam uh, means lots of people will be without power uh, for who knows how long. Uh, it, it, it even actually also hurts uh, Russian territories because this is where the main uh, freshwater canal leading to occupied Crimea comes from. So um, the devastation has been enormous. Ukraine, and if this was something that the Ukrainians did to themselves, and if that is discovered, it will be a massive blow in the trust between the government in Kiev and the Ukrainian people. And that's another high-risk uh, equation to be brought into this that I also think leads to the idea that it was not the Ukrainians who did this to themselves. And that leads to the question that I have for you, Phil, which is, do you think at some point in the future, and I know it's hard to predict, it's in fact impossible to predict the future, but would this event with the dam, is it significant enough that at some point it might have been considered or might be considered to have been a turning point? A turning point is a, is a, uh, there's a lot of weight in that term. Um, uh, is it a turning point in the war? It, it's going to be a significant, uh, this will be reflected upon uh, when we look back at this war as a major event. Will it be one that is pivotal? Does it change the course of this war? I can't say right now because we're in the midst of it. But um, it will certainly be a, a massive effect, uh, event that will be recorded in the history of this war. There's one other, uh, you know, uh, 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 there's one other factor here to be con- to be considered that we might also, uh, you know, determine how, how much of a, a significant event this is. And that is that this is also, I th- you know, talk about all the things that this is going to affect <clears throat> as a ripple effect of this one event. One of them also needs to be mentioned is that this is where the cooling water for the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, the largest nuclear power plant in Europe, um, it receives its cooling uh, uh, water from this facility. So unless uh, extraordinary measures are taken, there's another source of water that can be brought to to the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. There is the possibility they will not be able to cool uh, the rods, the, the the rods that power the plant, <clears throat> and and potentially, potentially we might be looking at a meltdown. That's that is a that's not happening immediately, <clears throat> and it's a major effort to try and stop that from happening. But that's where that water comes from. Right. If there is a obviously, if there is a meltdown at the Zaporizhia plant, that will be a a, a, a catastrophe of historic proportions. All right. That's our uh, war correspondent, Phil Lindner, uh, uh, talking to us from Ukraine today. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, CNN is looking for a new chief executive. Yeah, Chris Licht is now out following a lot of criticism about the direction of the network and that big story that was recently in The Atlantic, which really took aim at him. Tom Jones is senior media writer for the Pointer Institute and has been covering CNN extensively. Tom, thanks for being with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. So uh, I want you to explain, uh, if it can be explained, 
why the average person, somebody listening to us or somebody who watches CNN, would or should, and maybe they shouldn't, care about Chris Licht. <laughs> well, Chris Licht was brought in about 13 months ago to uh, take over for Jeff Zucker and provide new leadership to the to the network. And during that time, it was a very controversial reign. Um, he tried to, at least in, in the short time he was there, shift the news network a little bit editorially, more towards the center. You have, if some people think Fox News is on the right and MSNBC is on the left, that there's a, a place in the middle for more um, um, down the middle there's her centrist coverage. And that's what Chris Lick seemed to be. That's what his mandate was, but he wasn't very successful trying to do that. Yeah, a lot of people had problems with his tenure there at CNN. So, uh, you know, this is this was kind of percolating, I think, a long time before the sure. uh, infamous uh, Trump town hall, which got CNN an awful lot of ratings on that night. But then a big loss of ratings afterwards and, and never recovered from that. Was that the straw that broke the camel's back or or do you think that it, it only hastened his departure? I think it was a combination of things. I mean, certainly the Trump the Trump town hall turned into a disaster, but really it always comes down. As you just mentioned a minute ago, you said the magic word ratings. You know, if the network's doing well, Chris Lick still has his job there, but the ratings are are not uh, are not good. Morale is really low, and I think the one move that we shouldn't underestimate or overlook is a move that David Zaslav, who runs uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, which owns CNN, made less than a week ago. He took one of his top lieutenants, a guy by the name of David Levy, and put him in as COO of CNN Worldwide. Now, on the surface, it looked like, okay, that's a deal where um, he's going to come in and take some of the responsibilities off of Chris Lick's plate so that Chris Lick can worry about programming and ratings and that sort of thing. But I think most of us looked at it for what exactly what it was, which was David Saslap telling one of his top lieutenants, hey, get in there and find out what the heck's going on with this network because it's a mess right now. I think most of us thought it would take a couple of weeks or a couple of months even before Levy would get back to Zaslav and say, okay, here's what I've learned. But after that Atlantic article that you mentioned just a moment ago, um, I think probably Levy went back to Zaslav and said, look, I talked to a lot of people over the weekend and there were reports he spent all weekend on the phone with CNN employees that he went back to Zaslav and said, this isn't going to work. We need to make a change and we need to make it now. And that leads me to, to this uh, Tom, you know, CNN has always uh, exerted more influence than its numbers would suggest it should have in terms of viewership, although it has a, a fairly large following in the digital realm. But as for CNN it, it, itself, it, its ratings, uh, except for times of war, have never exactly been stellar. Um, so my question is, is the uh, Chris Licht's uh, removal, firing, dismissal, resignation, however one wants to spin it, uh, does this indicate a direction that CNN, which does have influence with with sort of the, quote, right people, unquote, and I don't mean to the right, right political spectrum, but, you know, political leaders, that sort of thing. Does this indicate a a future direction and what would that future direction be? Well, I mean, that's the that's the big question here, because, look, David Sasso's the one to put Chris Licht in place to begin with and gave him a mandate of like, here's what we want to do editorially moving forward. There's no question that CNN uh, has been a go-to place whenever there's been breaking news, like such as the war in Ukraine or Senate hearings on some, or, or disasters like hurricanes and earthquakes and that sort of thing. That's where CNN is at its best. The problem is there isn't breaking news like that every day. And they have found a, a tough time sort of finding their place in a world where 
people retreat to their echo chambers. Some people go to Fox, some people go to MSNBC. And the other problem that CNN is doing with right now is the fact that fewer people are watching cable news. And it's, it's uh, you know, with cord cutting, I think CNN's really trying to find out how do we have a place in, in, a, in a world and a landscape that's getting smaller and smaller every day. They tried it with streaming with CNN Plus, which was another disaster. And I think right now the problem that CNN has is they just got rid of one problem, but I don't think they know how to, how to fix the future problems that are about to hit them. Okay, so very quickly, before we run out of time, do they mm -hmm. go internal for a, a new person to lead it? Do they look outside? Who, who do they pick? Well, they're going to have a wide, a wide search, Zaslav says. They're going to look inside and outside. I think, you know, obviously, if they had tried to go inside, Zucker, they, Jeff Zucker had a lot of people that um, that really loved him inside of CNN. And so he might want to, you might want to look at somebody uh, who was considered, quote unquote, to be a Zucker type person. I think the first move there is to get the staff back because the staff is really upset at CNN. They really turned on Lick. I think that Zaslav needs to make a move that sort of, I guess, sends, extends an olive branch to the staff and said, hey, we're going to start listening to you and the work that you do. And by doing that, we're going to name somebody that you trust. Uh, one more uh, very quick question, that that uh, piece in the Atlantic. It, it was brutal, and somebody mm -hmm. described it as uh, Chris Licht was defenestrated. Not only that, they went downstairs, picked him up, brought him back upstairs, <laughs> and defenestrated him again. Uh, that's how bad it was. Does Chris Licht have a future in the industry after a piece like that? Well, he, look, he has a lot of friends, and he's done. Uh, he has a lot of support still. I mean, obviously, he worked on Stephen Colbert's show. Say that he has uh, people that he worked on at Morning Joe, who were very uh, who defended him. Uh, he has experience in, in morning TV. I think he might need to take some time and go away and sort of sort of refigure out uh, what he's going to do next. But um, I still think he has a, a decent reputation in the TV industry. Uh, maybe not running a network like CNN, um, because this did not go well. And I think even he, I think was surprised. I'll tell you what, if the next time Tim Alberta calls me for a profile, I'm going to say no thanks because it, it, it was a, it was a phenomenal piece. I wish I had written it, but I'm not sure too many executives are going to be lining up to have Tim Alberta uh, profile them in the future. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Tom Jones, senior media writer for the Pointer Institute. You're listening to KNX in depth. I'm Rob Archer along with Charles Feldman. If you have a teenage child, <laughs> right away, I, I, I know there are people going, you know, mm -hmm. I have a teenage child. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, what are you going to yeah. tell me? Well, if you have a teenage child, the question is, are you sick of them being home all the time? There is a new survey from Monitoring the Future that finds the high school seniors are spending less time with each other in person than they did a little over a decade ago. With us now is Gene uh, Twangy, author of Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. And that is quite a mouthful. Uh, she's also mom of uh, two teenagers. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So uh, uh, aside from the book title, which, which raises a question in my mind, I can't keep the names of all these generations separate. I don't know who's who. But why are high school seniors spending less time in person with their friends these days? Well, in short, it's because they're communicating with their friends online through social media. This is what we see, you know, over the generations is this shift toward spending more time online and less time hanging out with your friends face to face, whether that's going to the mall or just hanging out at home or driving around in cars. Those are all things that were popular 
with previous generations. And these Gen Z teens um, are not doing those things as much. Now, I can probably uh, see the point of view that some parents might have that that could be in some ways a good thing because some of those things you just ticked off, like going to the mall and driving around with friends in cars, I can see some parents going, well, you know, if they go to the mall, they could get themselves into trouble. So that won't happen. If they're driving around with their friends, they could get into an accident. So now that won't happen. It's just safer to have them at home. But do you buy that? Well, there's certainly some truth to that, but there's also some really big downsides of teens not spending as much time with each other in person. So this change has coincided with a mental health crisis. Teen depression started to increase right around that time that social media became popular and teens started spending less time with their friends face-to-face. Sure enough, teens who spend time with their friends in person are happier, and those who spend a lot more time on social media are less happy. Right, you mentioned uh, some things there, and and I think there might be some other factors as well. So I want to ask you what you think about that. But we talk about, well, they're spending more time online. I think people kind of saw that trend developing. We also had the pandemic and the schools were shut down for a while. That, that kind of cut back on the time that uh, teenagers spent with each other in person. Uh, but also there's another factor, too. You mentioned going to malls. Well, there are not that many malls uh, these days anymore. Could part of that be a changing of the physical infrastructure of our uh, cities? I don't think that's the primary explanation, because if it were, you would see that decline in teens hanging out with each other at the mall, but you wouldn't see declines in just how much time they spend socializing with each other or just, you know, some of the really general questions about how much do you go out with your friends or how much do you hang out with your friends in person, and those have gone down, and that doesn't really have anything to do with, say, not going shopping. Plus, these declines started well before the pandemic, so we know that there that the pandemic is not the cause. I, we mentioned at the very top that you're a mother of two teenagers. What do they do? So they tend to hang out at each other's um, houses quite a bit. That's pretty popular. Um, But, you know, they also don't have social media, so it's a little bit different than the experience of a lot of kids. Now, when you say they don't have social media, why is that? Uh, Well, they have heard me talk about my research on social media and depression for quite a number of years. So instead, they communicate with their friends um, using FaceTime or text. We have talked a lot about uh, depression in uh, teenagers, and a lot of that was blamed. Some people blame it directly on pandemic shutdowns of schools. But you seem to be indicating that uh, this trend was developing, as you said, before the uh, the pandemic. Uh, you're talking about teen depression. So you attribute it more to the prevalence of social media in that case, right? Absolutely. I mean, teen depression, clinical level depression in screening studies, not diagnoses, doubled between 2011 and 2019. So that's before the pandemic was ever on the scene. So we know that this started long before that. It's not just due to the pandemic. Um, And that happens to be right around the same time that smartphones became common and that social media use moved from relatively optional to almost mandatory among teens. And I don't think that's a coincidence. That was by far the largest change in teens' lives around that time that they started spending a lot more time online and a lot less time with their friends face-to-face. Are there practical solutions to this problem, the emphasis on the word practical? So one, 
the other thing that happened around that same time is the teens also started sleeping less, probably because they were on their devices more. So that's my number one practical piece of advice. No smartphones in the bedroom overnight, not just for our teenagers, but for all of us. All right. Thanks so much, uh, Jean Twenge, author of the book uh, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and what they mean for America's future. Do you keep your, your phone uh, with I, you when you're sleeping? I or? do not, uh, but I have been known to take my iPad into the bedroom and, and catch up on some reading. So I don't know if that counts as using a phone device if I'm using it to read. No, no, not not really. Yeah, no, okay. I mean, it's not, you know. So I'm bad. In other words, that's what you're saying. No, no, I mean, it's just, you know, it, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that non-judgmental answer. Charles Feldman, that's going to do it for KNX In-Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow.